0: Hello and welcome to Finding the Glitter in the Gold, a Lord of the Rings, Middle Earth, J.R. Tolkien chat podcast. I'm Hannah.
1: And I'm Zoe.
0: And uh, as always, <laughs> you're right.
1: I'm great. I just was like, wow, I said that really exuberantly.
0: You're very excited to be Zoe today. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> um we are as always discussing the works of john ronald Reuel tolkien who was writing stories set in middle earth from 1937 when he was 45 up until his death in 1973 when he still hadn't made an internally consistent narrative for his stories so any little mistakes that we make with the uh minute details of this are because just like jrr tolkien we are making shit up this particular episode, we are going to be talking about uh, a quality of his writing that uh, is somewhat controversial, it sounds like, in Tolkien scholarship, uh, and that would be his inclusion of poetry and songs in his works.
1: It's the best part, goddammit!
0: Zoe has very strong opinions about this which is great because as always I have not read the books and have no opinions.
1: It is the like the best part and the things that I remember most about my dad reading this to me are the voices that he made and the poems that he sang so therefore y'all can suck it because (laughs) poetry is awesome.
0: (laughs) Well a lot of the uh, scholars on Wikipedia would agree with you on this one and they're not just scholars on Wikipedia they are citations of scholars that Wikipedia used Honestly, doing research for all these uh, Tolkien episodes uh, about his writing is absolutely fascinating because these people really dig into it when they're talking about Tolkien. Like, a lot of these people are described as Tolkien scholars. I'm going to list off a shitload of names of these people, um, just as a heads up. Maybe if you are a big nerd for Tolkien, you will recognize their names. I'm not a huge nerd for Tolkien, and I still recognize some of their names because we've talked about them already.
1: What was it? Mr. Shippy? Shippy which is like the best name. But also like he we have cited him in every single damn podcast because he is so prevalent in Tolkien scholarship. It's Yeah,
0: yeah, he's prolific. I'll be citing him in this one as well among his peers. But yeah, so uh if like me you weren't totally aware, and even I was a little bit aware, I have made an attempt at the Hobbit and I've seen all the movies, of course. Um, but J.R.R. Tolkien included a lot of poetry and songs in the text of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and basically everything. Um, those were not his only poems that he wrote and maybe we'll talk at some point about his other poetry, although there is of course less written about that than the stuff that appears in Middle-earth texts.
1: I mean, he has, he has books of Middle-earth-based poetry that are just poems.
0: Yes and a great deal of poems appear in all of his works. Um, There's a website called TolkienGateway.net That's basically a wiki for Tolkien, and um, this website includes some lists of just poems that appear in Lord of the Rings, poems that appear in The Hobbit, and poems by J.R. Tolkien that do not appear in either of those books. So if you ever want to check that out, um, it's a pretty quick way to just see a list of the names of the poems. They don't have the full text of the poems, which is disappointing for me, but those are all listed out there, and if you've read the books, you might even recognize some of them where they pop up. There are over sixty poems and songs in *Lord of the Rings*, uh, and seven of those songs—all but one of them from *Lord of the Rings*—were made into a song cycle called *The Road Goes Ever On*, which was set to music by Donald Swan. And all the poems in *The Lord of the Rings* were set to music and published on CDs by the Tolkien Ensemble, which is a Danish group of folks who uh, want to just kind of create songs around Tolkien's stuff and they look adorable. Their picture on Wikipedia is very cute.
1: God bless the Danes!
0: (laughs) Exactly.
1: You know the next thing I'm going to look up on Spotify?
0: (laughs) Yes, of course. As as you said, there's a ton of poems and songs that Tolkien wrote and personally, uh, me speculating about it because we know so much about the history of this guy and we've talked about uh his history of scholarship on this podcast so much it's pretty clear why he would want to include some measure of poetry or meter or verse in his works because that was mostly what he translated since he was a scholar of epic poetry specifically old english and finnish and norse and stuff like that it totally makes sense that he would want to include something that he cares a lot about in his works. And the fact that oral history is so important to all of his characters, it also makes sense that they would sing and they would know songs and they would have like, you know, ditties to spit out and all that kind of stuff.
1: It's the only way to really pass on history if you're in that that era or that style of writing, really.
0: Yeah. I've done a little bit of research and academic um, writing around poetry that is my background is in Latin and Greek, uh, the classics. But yeah, it's the way that things are written in um, a particular style, if they choose to rhyme or not, um, alliteration and like tempo and meter um, are all kind of key details that help you memorize something. Mm -hmm. Um, for when you have to recite it later and they do appear a great deal throughout poetry and I'll be talking about those kinds of poetic devices in this podcast a little bit Uh, also just because the names for these things are really cool and that's fun for me
1: and I just I just appreciate that Tolkien because he felt like he was translating something he was translating a history that he personally had not written even though he did write it which is a little bit meta but like the fact that he felt like he was translating a history means that he would try and incorporate those historical devices into his writing. And that just makes it like we've talked about there being the, the first and secondary stories and how you, for, for a fantasy or sci-fi mm-hmm. to feel real, it has to pull from history or from reality to really draw the reader in, um, in that secondary world. And it just makes, it makes his writing feel so much more, realistic so much more historical so much more fitting yeah it it fits with a narrative that we already know yeah
0: yeah i think it lends a certain amount of characterization to who sings and how also which we're gonna talk about here in a second Well, because every
1: different character who has some kind of poetry or comes some kind of song within the lord of the rings has a different voice and it gives a background and it gives a sense of who they are and where they come from and what their tradition is. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the Hobbit's drinking songs are very different from some of the more somber songs that, um, like Aragorn sings a song, technically Legolas Gimli and Aragorn sing a song for the passing of Boromir. Mm-hmm. And I wrote like that song stands out vividly in my mind. It's, it speaks to the four winds and how the, and it gives the, the different winds and the different directions, different voices. And that is completely different than the Shire songs, mm-hmm. which we can get to. And I, I'm happy to read excerpts to that song because I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just like there's different tones and different histories and different just world views mm-hmm. in, in, every, in every, every single culture within Lord of the Rings has their own way of singing and what they sing about. And I love it. Yeah. And uh, he
0: also includes some stuff that isn't in English either, which creates that kind of Mm -hmm. verisimilitude of like, this is another world, there are other languages spoken, and sometimes you don't get to know what it means. But to jump right into it, since we're kind of uh, touching on every single, you know, topic that I had saved up here for this, we can start with... So, Thomas Coleman, a scholar of English literature, uh, has noted that poems and songs included in the no- including poems and songs in a novel, was really unconventional for 20th century literature. He wrote an article called Poetic Insertions in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, which was published in 2013. And he notes that the verses include songs of many genres there's songs for wandering, marching to war, drinking, having a bath narrating ancient myths, riddles, prophecies, and magical incantations, and then delivering songs that are praises or laments or eulogies. And some of these uh, have examples in Old English poetry, like riddles, charms, eulogies, and narrating heroic actions are all poems that appear in Old English. Funnily enough, uh, I... A Tolkien scholar named Michael Drought wrote that most of his students admitted to skipping the poems when they read Lord of the Rings.
1: What? No! That is, that is blasphemy!
0: <laughs> Gotta read it all or nothing. Yeah! Um, Drought actually considers the poetry essential for the fiction to work aesthetically and thematically, so it adds information that isn't given in the prose and it brings out characters and their backgrounds, as we talked about, um, what they choose to sing about and how says something about them and where they come from
1: can i can i just tell you about the drinking the the bath song
0: yeah tell me about the bath
1: second (laughs) so there's a okay so it's fellowship of the ring uh in the chapter called a conspiracy unmasked wherein pippin is singing about his bath song and it's him singing to the water (laughs) and it's uh For example, the first part is "Sing, hey, for the bath at close of day that washes the weary mud away. Alone is he that will not sing. Oh, water hot is a noble thing." (laughs) And it goes on to sing about the fountains and the falling rain and how water is fair that leaps on high and a fountain white beneath the sky. But never did fountain sound so sweet as splashing hot water with your feet.
0: (laughs) Thank you, thank you for sharing. That's
1: all I have. That's so much. (laughs) It's so good.
0: It's amazing.
1: Oh my god! I just, lo- I just love that they make songs about something as simple as a hot bath.
0: Yeah, and that says something about hobbits and their priorities, and also a yeah. little bit about like what they consider noble.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's the si- that's what I love about hobbits. Is it's the simple things. Yeah.
0: Apparently, Tolkien was aware that people skipped reading his poetry in the books. Mm. <laughs> he stated in a letter to michael tolkien in 1968 quote the verses in the lord of the rings are all dramatic they do not express the poor old professor's soul searchings but are fitted in style and contents to the characters in the story that sing or recite them and to the situations in it so again he was very aware of what he was doing and how he structured all of this um and it was very different from the style of poetry at the time where it was like very emotional and personal and his was pretty removed from himself. Again, he published poetry that was not at all related to Middle Earth. Um, some of them were in honor of people. He wrote a poem for W.H. Auden uh, on, I think it was the event of his retirement or something like that, which was very sweet and it was kind of like a silly little like friend poem. Um, that was quite nice. And he's written a couple of others that I read as well. But most of the stuff that he wrote was very much fitted to Middle Earth. Brian Roseberry writes in Tolkien, A Cultural Phenomenon, published in 2013, that the distinctive thing about Tolkien's verse is um, that quote, individuation of poetic styles to suit the expressive needs of a given character or narrative moment. And they have, uh, this person presents examples uh, such as the bleak incantation of the Barrow White. I don't know what that is.
1: Uh, so this was completely removed from the movie because it was it was in line with Tom Bombadil, when they decided that it was not actually necessary for the um, plot of the movie. But it was part of the book. Um, it's after they meet Tom Bombadil and they're on their way to the forest, the Forbidden Forest. Um, they go through the Barrow Whites, and the Barrow Whites are the big mounds, and they're ghosts essentially. They're like they. Um, spirits that haunt these, these mounds and there's a bunch of treasure in them and their skeletons um, and they get stuck in one of the mounds and it's like the first time that the company like the, the hobbits really have to deal with something of a different realm Like, and they end up calling up Tom Bombadil for help they, 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 Tom Bombadil gives them an incantation which is a, a poem, it's a, a four line poem and they sing it when they're stuck at the Whites and Tom Bombadil comes and helps them and then send some other way and then they go back to Brie and the Prancing Pony and they made up with Strider. But yeah, it's, it's basically, uh, the, the, there's a moment where, there, where Frodo wakes up and he's in one of the Barrow White domes and he's clasping a, a sword to his chest and he feels very cold. And he doesn't know what's going on and he hears this spirit, this thing singing an incantation that will basically um, summon other Barrow Whites and also kind of subdue the hobbits. And it's the first time that they really have to deal with something other, something of a specter quality that is evil.
0: So uh, that's interesting to me just because we don't see a ton of magic happen in the books or movies. Well, we don't see a ton of magic happen in the movies. That's the only one I can speak to. And the only person who does magic is the wizards, really, Um, maybe a bit the elves, but the idea of being able to recite something and summon somebody no matter who you are is pretty cool.
1: Well, it's it's interesting to me because the 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 meter and the verse that Tom Bombadil uses is much different than the Barrow Whites. So on page 160 of the version I have of the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the Barrow Whites incantation is, cold be hand and heart and bone and cold be sleep under stone. Nevermore to wake on stony bed Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead in the black wind that the star shall die and still on gold here, let them lie till the dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. And that poem has a little bit more of a similar feeling to the same style that he uses for a lot of the, like some of what Gollum uses, some of what like the the dark Lord uses compared to Tom Bombadil, which is very bouncy in which he says get out you old white vanish in the sunlight shrivel like the cold mist like the winds go willing out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains come never here again leave your barrow empty lost and forgotten darker than the darkness where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended which doesn't really have a ton of rhyme, but it's a much more like bouncy style of rhythm compared to like the slow incantation. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go with Tolkien having a different style for each character, it's very clear in that juxtaposition because like the, the Tom Bomb, it come in and save them is literally half a page mm. after the Barrow-White's incantation. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely a juxtaposition of style and meter and character
0: uh-huh. happening.
1: And they mentioned, like, the Barrow Whites mentioned the Dark Lord. Who knew?
0: Here he pops up. Yep. Um, A medievalist called Lynn Forest Hill, which is a pretty cool name. It's hyphenated. Uh, She talks about the nonsense of Tom Bombadil. A bit, and how Tolkien liked including nonsense poetry in his work here, and how um, Tom Bombadil's constant metrical chattering is how it's described, where he goes like, hey do, Mary dole, ring a ding dillo, ring-a-dong, hop along, fa-la the willow, Tom Bomb, jolly Tom, Tom Bombadillo. Uh, I assume that's his introduction, how he greets people. It's like...
1: I mean, some of it, so it's interesting because some of what Tom says is a italicized like that bit that you just read is italicized in the lord of the rings and then he has moment like a lot of the stuff that he says is also just in paragraph but it still has that kind of like bumpy jolliness to it so there's so there's the there's like the italicized like tom is like hey doll Merry doll ring ding, or dillo right and then there's also him just speaking in a paragraph which sounds a little bit something like don't you know my name yet only answer tell me who are you alone yourself and nameless but (laughs) you are young and i am old eldest that's what i am and he just like has this kind of bouncy bumpy rhythm to him even when he's just speaking um and you're talking about how tom has this like rhythmic aspect to his tone and it's he just constantly speaks like that
0: there's a lot of like internal rhyme or bouncing off of each other in the syllables too like yeah It's very silly and childlike and I feel like it's a pretty good lightener of the mood as well, Um, especially after that like Barrow-Whites thing. It's like, oh, you know, they had this huge scary incantation and this jolly dude pops up and... They
1: meet him before the Barrow-Whites. So they stay with Tom Bombadil and then they go to the Barrow-Whites and then they summon Tom Bombadil and then Tom Bombadil saves them and sends them on their way. Mm. Um, But... It's interesting. So you haven't read the books, Hannah, so you probably don't know this. But the interesting thing is that Tom Bombadil is one of the only beings in Middle Earth where the ring just disappears. The ring of power has no control over him. He puts it on and he doesn't go invisible. Whoa. Yeah. Right. So there's been a lot of speculation around, like, what does Tom Bombadil represent? But Mm -hmm. yeah, he's the only character where that happens. And he's this jolly, joyful, kind of disconnected, living in the woods with his glorious lady <laughs> and hopping around with a feather and does not give the ring to Gandalf and uh, to, to Tom Bombadil. And Gandalf's like, no, he'd probably lose it. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about these things. It's not, a good, <laughs> it's not a good idea. It has no control over him, but he doesn't care.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. And again, that's kind of shown in his song.
0: Yeah, uh, a Tolkien scholar called Dave Detman noted that Dom- Tom Bombadil's guests also find that song and speech start running together when they're in his house. Um, there's a line apparently where they all realize that they are, quote, singing merrily as if it was easier, more natural than talking.
1: Yes, yes, this is true.
0: So they all start talking in verse or meter or
1: something like that? Yeah, they just get really jolly. Okay. I mean, it's as if imagine someone who's really, really tipsy, but they don't, they're not actually drunk.
0: I'm picturing um, the scene in Mary Poppins where they go to that house with that guy who like, when you laugh, you can float.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's similar to that except without the floating.
0: Yeah. You're just like kind of silly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. uh, Some other people commented on why they would include such weird poems in this. Uh, there was a Re- Rebecca Ankeny who suggested that poems like this one um, reminded them of childish pleasure- pleasures, such as fairy tales or children's stories. Um, it, maybe it's just a reminder that you're reading a fantasy epic and it's kind of supposed to be fun for you and not like a ton of work, I don't know. <laughs> We talked, uh, we mentioned a little bit about the Hobbits poetry and there was something interesting that uh, Tom Chippy, that good old Tolkien scholar that we love so well, he noted in what he calls Shire poetry, which is quote, plain, simple, straightforward in theme and expression, end quote. But then it turns out to vary continuously as it suits different situations and different characters and character growth even. Like, there's a song that appears, it's Bilbo's old walking song. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now, far ahead, the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet, which is what starts Lord of the Rings.
1: Until I join some larger way. And with then, the past shall meet. And with then, I cannot say. (laughs) I love that poem so much. Anyway.
0: Well, the poem keeps reappearing in the books too. So apparently, Frodo yeah, sings it, it does. but he varies it with weary feet. And it suits his mood before he sings. sees a ring wraith, and then it shows up at the end of the book as Bilbo is like dying in Rivendell, and the poem shifts again when it is, is instead quote, but I at last with weary feet will turn towards the lighted inn, my evening rest and sleep to meet. So, like, the meaning of the poem has changed, too, and it's not about, like, resting, it's about dying. And then there's, of course, different walking songs that people sing, like Frodo's, when he's leaving Middle Earth, apparently, there's a walking song that goes, quote, A day will come at last when I shall take the hidden paths that run west of the moon, east of the sun, which i've actually seen before and yeah. i feel like it's one of those things that's quoted a lot and then not totally ascribed to somebody all the time like uh, not the, not all those who wander are lost sometimes pops up without yeah. credit and that's a Tolkienism. oh yeah yeah it's one of those things it's almost like shakespearean where it's entered our lexicon and we don't always know the source of it
1: i mean west of the moon
0: east of the sun to me oh
1: interesting yeah i've heard it i mean that that feels more kind of normalized than um not all those who wander are lost i don't know um like not all those who wander are lost i directly attribute to lord of the rings obviously um but yeah west of the moon east of the sun i feel like i've heard that in a lot of different contexts not just lord of the rings that's true
0: there's a whole like saga, I think, that's like a yeah. fairy tale about going west of the moon yeah. to the sun.
1: There's a lot there's a lot of poems about death that allude to death in Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Um, and there like the question of what is mortality. Like there's that um most notably in the movie, and we were talking about leitmotifs at one point, and there's the um, the song at the very end of the lord of the rings with annie lennox um um and then there's that point where right before the big battle like mary and gandalf are talking and mary's saying that he's afraid to die and gandalf talks about how it's nothing but a swift sunrise over green hills Mm -hmm. um and then the then the the into the West soundtrack is like playing in the background of that. And it's an allusion to death. Um, Mm -hmm. And that entire little bit is directly from a poem that, um, that's in the Lord of the Rings talking about how the sun rises over these, these, these green Hills um, and all fades to silver glass, um, which is an allusion to death for, for Tolkien. That is what death is. And again, it is going into the West. It is, it is going into this, to to Balinor. Mm -hmm. Um but I find it interesting how Tolkien describes death throughout the Lord of the Rings um as something idyllic yeah almost.
0: That's pretty Catholic.
1: Yeah. It 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 fits with his narrative. Yeah. But I, I also just find it beautiful how it's been tied together with specifically in the movie with the music. And the the poetry associated with it. Mm -hmm.
0: That was done very well. Yeah. Yeah, it's been interesting just looking over a lot of the poems that Tolkien wrote because a lot of them were repurposed and turned into songs for the movie. I feel like most of the music for that, if there's lyrics to it, it was derived from Tolkien himself. Yes, a lot of it was. Super interesting stuff. To get into kind of another... I don't know, purpose of the poetry in this work. Um, we talked a little bit already, but oral tradition and how important that was for Tolkien to represent in uh, his, his Middle-earth books. Shippy again, states that poetry is used to give a direct impression of the oral tradition of the writers of Rohan. The poem, Where Now the Horse and the Rider, echoes a poem called The Wanderer, and uh, Arise Now, Arise, Riders of Théoden is based on the Finsburg Fragment, which is a portion of an old English heroic poem. Um, it's only about 50 lines long, the fragment is, but it talks about a fight in which Nafe and his 60 retainers are besieged at Finn's fort and attempt to hold off the attackers. And... Tolkien wrote a commentary on this poem, so he was clearly influenced by it when he was writing about the Arise Now, Arise, writers of Theoden.
1: It's interesting to me because Legolas is talking about the language of the Rohirrim, which we talked very little about because there's less written about it. Um, and this is page 142 of The Two Towers. Uh, that, I guess, is the language of the Rohirrim, said Legolas, for it is like to this land itself, rich and rolling in parts, and else hard and stern as the mountains, but I cannot guess what it means, save that it is laden with the sadness of mortal men. It runs thus in the common speech, said Aragorn, as near as I can make it. Where now, the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? Where is the helm and the huberk, the bright hair flowing? Where is the land on the harp string and the red fire glowing? Where is the spring and the harvest and the tall corn growing? They have passed like rain on the mountain, like a wind in the meadow. The days have gone down and the west behind the hills into shadow. Who shall gather the smoke of the dead wood burning, or behold the flowing years from the sea returning? Thus spoke a forgotten poet long ago in Rohan, recalling how tall and fair was Erol the young, who rode down out of the north, and there were wings upon the feet of his steed, Thelaroth, father of horses. So men still sing in the evening. Mm. I'm having a moment, y'all. I'm having I'm having a moment <laughs> here. Oh, my God. For one thing, you love the poetry. oral tradition, like it's still sung. For another thing, the horses I remembered as these like <laughs> steeds of gloriousness. For another, it's... Sla. Yeah. Sla. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's that which makes me want to know about Finnsburg fragment because I have no idea what this is and I want to compare the two things yeah. uh, because literally like what you said it was 50 50 words
0: 50 lines
1: 50 lines okay this was like seven anyway I'll have to look that up
0: well apparently the poem that Tolkien wrote is composed very strictly in the meter of old English verse and when I say meter What I'm talking about is the combination of stressed and unstressed syllables in a sentence. Um, If you know anything about Shakespeare, you probably heard the phrase iambic pentameter, which is a type of meter using iams, which are words or a combination of accents really that is an unstressed and unstressed syllable and it sounds like heartbeat and it's um, very boring if everything is just in that meter so there's actually a lot of different ways to combine words and um, string these sentences together to get different kinds of rhythms just to touch on a couple of them that are really fun to me a pyrrhic is two unstressed syllables and i am is unstressed stressed. And then there's spondies, which is two stressed syllables. And then you start getting into trisyllabic stuff, which uh, just goes off the rails for that. There's tribroc, dactyls, amphibroc, anapest, bacchus, antibacchus, cretic, and molossus, which I can love. can you say
1: bacchus and I'm like god of drinking? Why is it bacchus and antibacchus? Like, are you pro-drinking or like teetotaler? What?
0: Bacchus is actually uh, unstressed, stressed, stressed, and then anti-Bacchus is unstressed, unstressed, stressed syllables.
1: Gotcha. Molossus,
0: though, I'm loving, because molossus is just three stressed syllables in a row.
1: So it's like you're yelling. Pretty much. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah.
0: (laughs) So anyway, Petulkin would be very aware of how to structure a poem so that it follows these kinds of rhythms and the very strict meter of that kind of stuff. Um, following that as well. So that's kind of an example of him working in some of his work into the uh, text of the Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth books and all that. This kind of influence also shows up in the imagery and the tradition of uh, his works, like having that oral history. Sometimes it's alliterative. You get something like that in um, Aragorn's Lament for Boromir, which shows up in The Two Towers, book three, chapter one, and says, beneath Amon Hen, I heard his cry. There are many foes he fought. His cloven shield, his broken sword, they to the water brought. His head so proud, his face so fair, his limbs they laid to rest. And Rarus, golden Raras falls, bore him upon its breast. A Tolkien scholar called Mark Hall compares this Lament for Boromir with Skilled Skiffing's ship burial in Beowulf and there's also kind of parallels drawn with other old Norse poetry and old English epic poems you can definitely feel like the same style and the same rhythm and rhyme schemes showing up there
1: well, there's one, there's one of, in concerning Boromir that I was super fascinated by because it anthropomorphizes uh, the different winds and the different directions that the wind comes from. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not really sure how that fits in with all of them. I mean, there's
0: something about nature and drawing nature into poetry um, and making it a part of these like invocations and stuff like that
1: yeah if, if it definitely feels like an invocation or like the wind itself is um mourning Boromir oh and I don't know if there's I don't think there is any other character in the Lord of the Rings where that is done to mm-hmm. this is from the two ta- the very beginning of the two towers the first chapter called The Departure of Boromir um and it's basically talking about the West Wind was walking, um, and they're asking him, the winds, have you seen Boromir? And the West Wind is saying, oh, Boromir, from the high walls westward, I looked afar, and you came not from the empty lands where no men are. Um, and they talk to the West Wind, and they're, they're, they're speaking to Boromir. And I find that very interesting in terms of the character of Boromir that we've talked about before. He wasn't really a hero. He wasn't really an anti-hero, He played a part that was often seen as negative, but maybe was more positive than people have given him credit for. Like we had an entire episode about that. Um, And this method of eulogizing this man that was very controversial, who'd be controversial as a character. Like he did a lot of bad things for the fellowship, but in the end he Mm -hmm. died for Marian Pippin. Mm -hmm. Um, And this really kind of hard to pull apart personalization and just the fact that these, these different winds, these different directions are sad about his death and trying to find him and praising him, but also coming through the voices of Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn. Yeah. It, it's their own way of honoring him without it really being personal in a way.
0: It also makes it bigger than them, too. It's kind of like a hero's death at the extreme where, like, all of these elements are mourning him as well.
1: Yeah, and I I don't know if there's any other character off the top of my head I can name who gets that kind of eulogy.
0: Yeah. Well, not very... And I don't know that any major characters die in this. Not for good, anyway. Gandalf kind of, you know, bites it, but then comes back as Gandalf the White.
1: And they do, and there is a lot of poetry within that chapter. Uh, Sam sings to Gandalf, and Legolas sings to Gandalf, and mm. the the elves of the wood are singing in Elvish, and Legolas does not have the heart to translate for them. Mm. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of poems written for the dead and to honor the dead. Mm-hmm.
0: It's interesting, yeah, and you say, like, Legolas won't translate what is said um, because there is another component of the poems which is establishing otherness and otherworldliness okay. which is whenever there are poems in Elvish which is pretty common. Um, you recited one for me and I think we played one for um, our episode on the soundtracks of Lord of the Rings where Tolkien sang
1: mm-hmm. a bit
0: in Elvish. Um, I mean I Elbereth Cithoniel is the one that yes exactly see you know it (laughs) even though it's just a combination of sounds to me um and possibly you know what it means i don't
1: i do but you know
0: yeah but it creates a very um it kind of removes you from the book a little bit in some ways and reminds you that you're reading a fantasy which is always a very interesting process when you get kicked out of something that you were originally immersed in
1: you were mentioning that um your housemaid was playing the the song where Aragorn was chanting. Yeah, I in the front of my Return of the King, I wrote that chant. Et are elo endore etulien Silveren. no. Anyway, it's basically what Aragorn sings when he is being crowned king. Mm. And I find it interesting that he is singing this in Elvish. It basically means. Um, Uh, Into uh, into Middle-earth I am come, and here I will abide with my heirs until the ending of this world. It's singing about Numenor in Elvish Mm. um, and his pact to the rest of Middle-earth as king of Gondor and his his lineage, in honor of his lineage and what he comes from and what he promises to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's not translated.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, But he sings that in Gondor on his coronation – almost Mm -hmm. emphasizing the fact that he was raised in Rivendell and and is most like partly Elvish essentially. Um, but there's no, there's no translation, even though Gondorians wouldn't speak Elvish.
0: Mm -hmm. This feeds into something where again, Shippey writes that Tolkien believed that, um, the sounds of language could be beautiful by themselves, even if there was no meaning behind it to the person reading it. Um, Like he personally found the sounds of Finnish and Welsh to be really, really beautiful. And he knew the languages and stuff, but he just liked the sounds of them. And so Shippey writes that Tolkien, quote, believed that untranslated Elvish would do a job that English could not. And Shippey suggests that readers take something important from a song in another language, namely the feeling or the style that it contains, even if you don't know what it means precisely. And I think that's totally true and especially comes across in the movies when you have these beautiful moments where Aragorn is speaking Elvish or singing Elvish.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think it it helps, especially in the movies, because you have the, the feeling in it. Like when you read it yourself, it's not quite the same as hearing someone sing it and have that intonation and that emotion behind it. Like I think they did a really good job in the movies with that. Definitely. Um, this is very random, and I did not remember this, but I happened upon it. But in terms of otherness, um, it's an interesting combination of English and uh, what I would guess is Gondorian. But in the field of Cormelin and The Return of the King, everything has finished, and they've killed off the bad guys, basically. And the hobbits are—it's during the coronation of Aragorn, and everyone is praising the hobbits— like, everyone is singing to them, and it's a combination of English and Gondorian. For example, long live the halflings, praise them with great praise. I ferian anan, aglarni Ferianaf? praise them with great praise, Frodo and Samwise. Dawur a conan and anun. Like, huh. he, he basically writes this poem that is half in English, half in another language. You don't know what the hell they're actually saying, but you get a sense of it. Yeah. Um, and I really like that way of telling a story almost
0: yeah i mean it again brings in the idea that you are in a different world and these people Mm -hmm. have lives outside of the story and a history outside of the story that's being told like there's a hints at a huge deep backstory there that led to this language and it's so cool just to feel like that again world building feeling
1: and like you know, Tolkien says that he's writing in the common tongue, aka English. But it's nice when he reminds us that this isn't a story happening in just one language. It's happening in multiple. And then you get to experience and it it puts you into the story in a different way. Like like it reminds me of when I was in France before I spoke French, and the entire world of my like where I was was I didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. I was in a different language, and then sometimes there'd be some English. I'd be like, "Oh, I know what's happening! Thank God, I know what's going on!" And then French would resume, and I'd be like, "I don't know what what. Sure, I guess I'll go that way. Great, but like, it's kind of a nice reminder of you don't really know where you're at. It's it's a different culture. It's a different place and time. I love it. I love
0: mm-hmm. it. It's very immersive." It yeah. sinks you, and I mean, even as it kicks you out, it does sink you in a little bit more too. Like you're like, oh, all yeah. right, I'm reading a fantasy book, but damn, this feels so real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, uh, again, I'm just gonna stick with Shippy because like everything he says is important, but. Um... <laughs> well he Tolkien inspired a lot of fantasy authors and a lot of people copied a lot of what he did um and I think you see a lot of that if you read high fantasy you can see notes of Tolkien and a lot of works especially coming out around the same time none of them really tried to use poetry in the novel the same way that he did and Shippy thinks that there's a couple different reasons why um one might be that it's just too much trouble <laughs> And then another one is that Tolkien was professionally trained as a philologist to investigate the complexities of literary tradition, um, including gaps and mistakes and contradictory narratives and all that kind of stuff. And since the discipline of investigating literary tradition has faded, it's probable that no author ever will attempt it again, just because it's hard to do well. This is why I love (laughs) Tolkien. Not everyone loves his poetry, I should say. Some people are pretty freaking brutal about it. They're like, oh, it's weighted down with cliches or self-consciously decorative, or he was a better writer of prose than a verse, someone said. Um Did I ever
1: tell you about the conversation I got to, into with a friend of our mutual friend Quinn on Facebook? Yeah, and what was it? Yeah, so Quinn had wrote this thing and I put a comment on it of like, oh, that reminds me of this poem from the Lord of the Rings by Tolkien because we both love Tolkien. And one of his friends was like, you should never compare any, like that's Dirgil. He writes terribly. Tolkien is a terrible author, never compare him. And then he compared Tolkien to Hitler. And I was like, whoa, you gotta stop. That is not what just happened. I was just saying that I liked Quinn's poetry and it reminded me of this one thing, like, calm your shit, dude. And then Quinn ended up deleting this person on Facebook and, like, apologizing to me. Oh. Um, but, but it was interesting to go with this entire thing of, like, how mixed the reception of Tolkien's poetry is. Yeah. Some people hate it. Yeah. Sorry, I like it. But, you know.
0: You had a good exposure to it, too. I mean, you had somebody reciting it to you. And from what I can tell, just based on the poetry that I've read, in researching this episode it is better read aloud like you get a better sense of the sound of the words especially if it's in another language um yes you get a sense of the rhythm of it and it's fun to say like it's really fun to read yeah I feel that way about a lot of poetry there's some poetry out there that's like free verse or whatever and doesn't have a lot of rhythm to it and it's not as fun to read but there's poetry there I mean there's whole genres of poetry that are spoken word. And uh, that's an important component of it is picking the right sounds as well as the right ideas.
1: That's that's why oral, that's part of oral history. That's part of the beauty of an oral history is that they didn't necessarily have a written language for it and the, the sound of it was important. I've been reading, um, I've been reading eight years and we were eight years in power by um tanahisi Yes,
0: um
1: and he was saying how for him hip-hop was the first language where Mm -hmm. he learned to appreciate the sound and the flow of words and where grammar wasn't as important as the way it made you feel yeah um and that Resonated with me on the level of poetry and Tolkien and oral history and that sense of how do you like the fact that when you pass something on and when you speak or sing or say Poems, songs, lyrics, whatever it is That's the, the, the way it makes you feel and the way it reverberates is as important as what it's saying
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, And I think that that also Jives for Tolkien when you say that it's it's better to be read out loud like mm. that. It, it's meant to be read out loud because it's almost meant to be part of an oral history, and the importance of it is the rhythm and the feeling and the the emphasis and just the, the sound of it and the way it beats.
0: I mean, the fact that it was so easy to put it to music for the movies uh, kind of speaks to how it's meant to be appreciated.
1: Yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah well this is kind of a you know just touching the surface of tolkien's poetry but thank you for listening to our episode anyway uh, finding the glitter in the golds um if you'd like to reach out and chat about anything in our podcast you can reach us at glitterinthegold at com. We're available through all major podcasting apps. Um, We would love it if you would like us, rate us, write us a review, subscribe to us, share us with your friends if you think they'd be interested. Um, Yeah, and I think that'll do it for us today.
1: Thank you so much for going along with me reading random bits of poems from Tolkien. I got really really excited. I love it. I love it. I love it so much.
0: It's fun to redo a read aloud episode. We'll do some more.
1: Okay, yes, we totally should because it brought me great joy.
0: Yes, nobody sue us, please.
1: No, yeah, we're just doing it out of the love of it. I'm sorry. We just appreciate (laughs) it so much. We just appreciate it. Oh my goodness. Okay. Anyway, I didn't think about that.
0: No, we'll be fine.
1: I, I didn't think about that. And I was the one who flipping gave the entire podcast about. (laughs) <laughs> trademarks oh god. oh god I just got so excited everybody and I had the books right in front of me so I just kept moving yep. through it to find my favorite poems mm-hmm. shit happens y'all. shit happens
0: it's all good
1: anyway thank you so much for joining us and we'll spell on the shire side